Thank you so much. Thank you, Hannah. Well, let's just take a moment and pray uh, for the ministry at uh, Indeed and Truth and for Hannah in, in her next, next adventure here. And I can tell you that, uh, uh, you know, Eastgate has uh, been a supporter of Indeed and Truth for many years now. And I highly, uh, I, I give my full recommendation to that ministry. If you're looking for ways in which you want to get involved uh, financially supporting uh, a ministry, this is one that, that, you know, I've invested my heart in as well. And uh, so we certainly would recommend them to, to anyone. Um, and with Hannah, we want to just certainly keep you in prayer and what you're doing. It's just profound to me to see a young person so, uh, so uh, determined to go out and do good in this world. And that certainly is the kingdom of God moving forward. And I love that. So let's pray for them. Father, we pray for Indeed and Truth and for Hannah uh, specifically as she's going off to school. But we just pray, Lord, that you continue to provide and support this ministry. We pray, Lord, that you continue to advance your kingdom through all of the good that's being done, uh, through the people that give of their time, of their lives, to, to, to bring your hope, the hope of your kingdom, into this broken world. We pray for Hannah as she goes uh, to school. We ask you, Lord, to, to guide her through her studies, protect her and keep her safe, and provide for everything she needs. We pray for for Susie and for Jed as they head back over to, to Tanj. We ask you to give them safe travels and be with them in, in all the activities that they do. We, we trust you, Lord. We entrust these dear, precious souls into your hands, and in your hands, everything is safe. And so uh, we commend them to this ministry, and we, we send them forth in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you guys so much for sharing. That was beautiful it's wonderful it's it's encouraging in the midst of all the awful things going on in the world it's nice to be able to hear some some wonderful things that are happening so uh, we're going to take some time here just to get into the word i'm not going to keep you too too long uh so don't get scared uh but i am a preacher but uh so so be afraid but uh you've heard the saying before right uh god helps those who and you know a lot of people uh Assume that that's a, a, a biblical phrase, but I'm sure you know it's not, right? That's not anywhere in the Bible. Actually, the, the first time that we see it, it's attributed to Aesop's fables, uh, the, the fable of Hercules and the Wagoner. Uh, if, we were to, if we were to take that line and try to come up with something biblical uh, or something that, that is harmonized with the biblical thought, we'd say that God helps those who know they are helpless, because that would be a little more appropriate. That's the overall emphasis that we actually find in Scripture. And that's going to be the heart of what we're going to be looking at today as we move along in our study of the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a Bible and you'd like to follow along with us, head over to Luke chapter 18, please. We're continuing through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, looking at the story of Jesus to understand what it is that this means to our lives as we live as 21st century Christians. Last week... We read a parable about the widow and the unjust judge, and that was a story meant to instruct us about persistence in prayer and endurance in faith, with the underlying theme being that of justice, that is, enduring in our hope, in our faith, uh, that God will bring about his justice in this world, that he will one day set all things right. His kingdom will be fully revealed one day in his timetable, not ours, but will be revealed to, to set things right uh, and, and undo what's happened to this place because of sin. 
And that, we said before many times, that's the hope of the gospel. Like everything that, that Susie was sharing about, this going out and representing this good into the world, that is the hope of the gospel. Now, the parable we're going to read today is one that may be very familiar to us. Uh, if you've been around church at all, I'm sure you've heard it somewhere along the line. The story of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. Uh, it sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, as you're saying. A Pharisee and a tax collector walk into the temple, but it's actually not a joke. Um, it's actually pretty serious. And if I could, if I could quote uh, General Akbar, it's a trap. Uh, and it's a trap because there's a way of reading this story on the surface that seemed so straightforward and simple that it's usually the go-to explanation for this parable. But remember, Jesus in Luke's gospel is the master of reversal. And things are never what they appear to be on the surface. And so if we grab the low-hanging fruit of that interpretation, we're going to realize right away that it was bait and we've been caught. Uh, and you'll see what I mean as we get into it. But if you're there in Luke chapter 18, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to start with verse 9. And I just want to read the whole parable through and then we'll examine uh, what it says here. It says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence. It's interesting, he's telling this to them. To tell this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters and sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance, dared not even lift his eyes to heaven, and he prayed as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh, God, be merciful to me, to me, for I'm a sinner. I'll tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay, so now, as I said at the outset, the, the, you know, there seems to be very little mystery to this. It seems very straightforward. There is an obvious way of looking at this and reading this. We've even got Luke's preamble to it and Jesus' explanation of it. So let's look at this. We've got two characters whose prayers, and what we mean by that is whose words clue us in on their attitudes and their dispositions. We've already encountered uh, many Pharisees in Luke's gospel so far, as well as many tax collectors. And Luke, in his story, has been reversing their roles when it comes to societal perception. Now, all through this narrative, in that time, and that cultural setting, the, the Pharisee would have been the respected, the righteous pillar of the community, would have probably been a leader within the community. He was serious about keeping the law of Moses and remaining pure before God. I mean, his whole life... I mean, his whole life from morning till evening was all centered around following God's commands. That's what the Pharisaic movement was about. The Pharisees developed as a sect whose determination was to fully keep God's laws in hopes that such obedience would end Israel's exile. Israel believed themselves still to be under exile, even after coming home from Babylon, because the Romans were still occupying their land. So they believed that they needed to get serious with God, and if they could get serious with God, exile would end, Messiah would come, God's kingdom would be established. And so they, you know, they were serious about this. We could say 
Like, here's what I want to say very clearly here, because sometimes people go into to territories of anti-Semitism when they're, when they're describing things like the Pharisees. And I want to make it very clear, this is not a Jewish problem. This is a human problem. This is a human problem when it comes to religion. They are akin to the reformers of the Middle Ages or the fundamentalists that rose up after the Age of Enlightenment. They were people who were deeply and sincerely committed to this cause. But as so often happens, as we see all through histories, as it was with many of the reformers and the fundamentalists and many in between and after, that the cause becomes larger than the God they intended to set out to please. And thus, we've got the Pharisaic movement in the time of Jesus who had evolved into this arrogant and elitist institution that actually missed the Messiah that was right in front of them. The tax collector, on the other hand, was, I mean, the tax collector. Nobody likes them. But, I mean, but, but more than that, they were people who were collaborating with the Roman Empire, people who were, we could say, traitors to their country. They, you know, people who had added extra fees to the Roman requirements for taxes in order to line their own pockets. These guys, we got to realize, I mean, they're painted very favorably in the Gospels, but we have to understand they were the pariahs of society for a reason. They took advantage of innocent people. Children went to bed hungry because of these guys. People lost their homes and their livelihoods because of the activities of these, these tax collectors. And yet... All through Luke's gospel, the normal societal views of these two people, these two people groups, is reversed. Jesus welcomes and he eats with the tax collectors and the Pharisees are trying to discredit and trap and ultimately kill Jesus. So when Luke introduces this parable, we, we know right away how this all works. We know how this has been unfolding in the story so far. And so when he begins to explain this and we hear that there's a Pharisee and a, and a tax collector, we know right away that who's the bad guy. It's that, that's that rotten Pharisee. He's so self-righteous. And we see right away who the good guy is. It's the tax collector who's so humble. And when we try these characters on for size, we realize who we want to be. Well, I want to be the humble person. I want to just thank God that I'm not like that arrogant, elitist Pharisee over there and clang, the trap gets sprung on us. It's a surprising twist of this parable that doesn't become clear until we try these characters on. The moment we say, I'm going to be like this one and not that one, we contrast ourselves with the other and take what we consider to be a superior position, putting us right in the place of what was seen as wrong with the other. This story ultimately is an inescapable loop if we try these characters on and put ourselves in that position, which means either Jesus was really monkeying with us here or it must mean something more than what it just quickly reads as. It must be more than just contrasting different kinds of prayer. Remember, and, and this is a rule we've been saying over and over again, that parables are never about what they read on the surface, right? They're never about that. He's never really talking about farming when he's talking about farmers. So we have to realize that applies here as well. And it's interesting that this is the only parable that Jesus tells that has a religious setting. Every other thing that he tells is a secular story. This is the only one that takes place in the temple, which means maybe we need to look at that a little bit deeper and think about that. 
I want to look again at what, how Jesus concludes the story in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Justified before God. That's the key phrase in this. The, the word has its root in the, the word, the Greek word for justice. It's a legal concept of a person being freed from guilt and declared, declared right or just before God, justified before God. Maybe the point isn't about the Pharisee or the tax collector. Maybe the subject is God and his justice, which would flow then very neatly from the last parable that we just read. Maybe the idea isn't to shun the Pharisee or emulate the tax collector, but to get a view about what God's justice means to our lives, how it is that we conduct ourselves as we seek to live his justice out in the world in which we've been placed. If that's the case, then yes, we have negative lessons and positive ones, but not so much as to claim the higher ground, but as a means of guiding the choices that we all make. This parable is a way of revealing to us how we're either at odds with or cooperating with God's justice. We're either at odds with, working against God's justice, or we're cooperating with and advancing his justice in the world around us. Stories started off saying that this was about those who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. That's the preamble that Luke gives this. And so I think the first thing that we want to take away from this is that we're at odds with God's justice whenever we look down on others. God's justification, God's just acceptance does not come at the expense of others around us. This is what the Pharisees got wrong. This is what the church continues to get wrong so often. The point when it comes to God's kingdom isn't about which group is right or wrong. The point, as Luke has been driving home, is that we're all wrong. We're all wrong. We're all on the wrong side of history when it comes to God's kingdom. We spend a lot of time trying to make sure we're on the right side of history. You hear that phrase all the time. I want to be on the right side of history when it comes to this or that issue. Let's face it, we're all on the wrong side of history when it comes to God's goodness, his justice, his righteousness. There's not one who has not fallen short of the glory of God. All of humanity is the Pharisee in this story. We are all prone to wanting to be exalted, right? I mean, we are to be seen as right. The whole reason we get into arguments, the whole reason we argue online, that's my symbol for arguing online, <laughs> is <laughs> this shows my age too, because that wouldn't be my kid. My kids would be arguing online like this. <laughs> but the whole reason we do that is we want to show that we're right and the other people are wrong. They're all wrong. I'm right. You're only right if you're on my side uh, of this. We're all prone to view the other, the one not like me, suspiciously, dismissively, or at least as dispensable. And that puts us out of sync with God's justice, God's rightness. Because the emphasis of the gospel is not to prove who's right and who's wrong. Remember that. The emphasis of the gospel is not to prove who's right in the history of the world. It's to reveal what the world can be like when God's in charge of it. And the point is, we're all wrong, and only God is right. 
it's really fascinating. The stuff that this Pharisee lifts off is not bad stuff. I mean, it's commendable stuff, especially in the context in which he was living. It's the stuff that everyone was called to aspire to. The Pharisee isn't lying. He's telling the truth. He leads a life that's obedient to the law of Moses. He fasts. He gives alms. He doesn't cheat on his spouse or he's not dishonest about things, uh, you know, or doing any of the things that the straw man he sets up to contrast himself with. But that's the thing. He's setting himself up as superior to those who do those things. He's despising the people whom Jesus loves as Jesus has been showing by eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's despising the ones that God, in his justice, in his justice, has reached out to love. See, while the Pharisee was right about the kind of ethical life he was called to live, he was confused about the source of that life. And that's the big deal. Because he, believe, he believes that this is incumbent on him. He leaves the temple just as righteous as he came in according to the law. But he was not justified. That is, he's not accounted and called righteous by the only one who matters, and that's God. And I think that reminds us too then that we're at odds with God's justice when we rely on our own works for righteousness. The challenge in this is that, you know, like I said, we like being exalted. We like it when people think we're right. That's the whole reason we look at our works in the first place or want to advertise our works is because, you know, it definitely sets us up. It sets us, you know, in a, in a more superior place. It always starts innocently enough too, like in the satisfaction of a job well done or a duty fulfilled, and there's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with feeling all right about having done a a good job on something. But so often that leads to something else. And we know that that's an issue for us because our present society at large is relentless in demanding proofs and justifications from us. And it's so easy to take the bait. It's so easy to begin virtue signaling. Oh, you know, I changed the profile picture on Facebook to, you know, to a symbol that supports a cause for justice, you know, so obviously I'm trying to change the world. (laughs) That changes the world. Uh, So it's always this temptation to begin believing that the things we do like the religious activities or the causes that we support or the things that we don't do, like being thieves or bullies or adulterers, really might justify us just a little bit anyway. Might make us a bit better than those who fall short where we succeed. But until we let go of that faulty notion, according to Jesus, we won't go home justified. We won't go home in sync with God's justice will be prisoners of our own small righteousness. So in contrast to that, we've got this tax collector. He's averting his eyes. He's beating his chest. It's a, it's a recurring theme in Luke's gospel that, that we need to receive God's kingdom from the position of lack and need. The tax collector's prayer is shaped by distance and posture. He's not looking up. It's his gestures. He's beating his chest and his words, his confession. But notice in this, it is his confession without bargaining. And that's intriguing to me about the tax collector's prayer. There is no promise of repentance in this prayer. 
There's no pledge to leave his job with the Roman army or the Roman government. There's no pledge to give back the money that he cheated from people. There's no promise that he makes in this at all about changing his life. Now, those things we will assume would flow from a justified life from God. But he comes to God without trying to broker a deal at all. All he has is the simple acknowledgement that he is utterly and entirely dependent on God's mercy. It's similar to the widow that we looked at last week in, in, in that parable who represented our total dependence on God for justice. Here we see our part of that equation of justice. When it comes to justice and its appearance on this earth, then we are in need of God's mercy. The tax collector seems to know the one thing the Pharisee doesn't know, his life is God's. His past, his present, and his future is entirely dependent on God's loving mercy towards him. So as an antidote to self-righteousness and self-elevation, we learn from the tax collector that we cooperate with God's justice when we admit that we don't do this well and we're in need of God's grace. And and this is a truth that cuts two ways. First, because it's God's mercy and grace we're talking about, it means that we no longer measure our worth by our failures or successes. We no longer measure our value based on whether we've succeeded or not. Precisely because our justification doesn't depend on our ability to do this well. We, we embrace this truth that there is nothing, there is nothing that can stain us beyond God's redemption of our lives. God loves us. God loves you. God loves us. Brendan Manning used to say, God loves us just as we are, not as we should be. So all of the excuses and laments that, you know, I'm not good enough, I'm not holy enough to come to God, that all gets swept away. Because all we have to do is embrace that saying as true. We need to be real about who we are. I'm not good enough. I'm not holy enough. What of it? This was never about what I can do, but always about what the one who loves me did. And the fact that the tax collector is described as justified by God when he offered no promise of doing something in return, to me, it's like a literary arrow that shoots straight, directly at the cross of Calvary. Because our justification doesn't come at the expense of our fellow person, but it did come at the expense of the only forgotten son, begotten son, who took our place and bore the entire consequence of sin on himself, defeating the oppressive powers of evil. There's another side to this as well. Not only is my failure and inability not a a barrier to God's grace, but there is nothing that I can do that is going to add to that justifying grace. That's what I'm saying before. Sometimes we keep thinking that the things that we do, well, justifies me a little bit before God. There is nothing that we're adding to this. Nothing at all. Paul words it so eloquently in Ephesians 2. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation isn't a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. 
But we are God's masterpiece. What a great thing to remember. You know, you, you, you hear something like this, and you hear a, a guy like me stand up here saying, yeah, we're all on the wrong side of history, and you kind of want to go, oh, okay. But realize what we're saying in this as well. We are all God's masterpiece. Who are you? Uh, that, didn't, that lacked conviction. Who are you? Think of that. Think of that. That's how, that's how the scriptures describe you. We are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things, the good things that he planned for us to do. You know, and there's the thing. Sometimes I suspect that we're okay with the idea that, you know, we're saved by grace. My initial salvation, well, yeah, that was provided by God's grace and not my works. But, you know, after we're in, well, you better get busy. You know, use an old bumper sticker. Jesus is coming back, so look busy. The whole thing, you know, I got to, you know, I got to, if I'm going to keep this up and I'm going to be okay, I got to keep busy here and do stuff. But, but that's what Paul is getting at. Even when we do the good stuff, even when we're promoting and advancing his justice into this world, we're not the source of that. That didn't come from us. The good works, it didn't happen from us. All we're doing is joining in on God's goodness and his justice as it moves through this earth, through this amazing kingdom project that was inaugurated through Jesus. And, and as Paul puts it there, the good works, all the positive changes in our lives, that flows from the justification that we've received by grace. It always flows one way. That, that never changes. That never changes. It's all from him and through him and to him. And, and that's, to me, what is so wonderful about this good news. We and everyone around us are all sinners and all beloved children of a gracious father. I think that's the part that we miss so often. We, we as the church, tend to kind of, you know, either avoid the idea that we're sinners and try to make everybody feel good about themselves and not worry about it. You're okay, buddy. Or we, we tend to wallow in that. Well, we're all sinners and we're no good and, and, and kind of self-flagellate, you know, over the terrible things. But if we can keep that balance and recognize, yeah, none of us does this well. We, we are. We are. We are all sinners, but we are all unimaginably loved by the one who created us, the one who knows us by name, by the one who cares about us like we could never even conceive of care being. This parable invites us to experience the freedom that comes with tossing aside the flimsy armor of our own efforts and throwing ourselves into the arms of God who loves us, who's already there, who's already found us, and whose primary intent, always remember, when it comes to you and your life, God's primary intent is to lift us up and to lead us home. And knowing that, we have nothing to fear. I can't think of better news than that. Right on? All right, very cool. Cool. Will you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for all the things that we've experienced here today as we've, we've spent time in community worshiping you and speaking the same things together as we sing these songs. We've heard about the good works being done all the way across the world over in Africa. And we just thank you, Lord, that you've invited us to participate in the good things that you do in this world. 
while the world is being rocked by calamity after calamity, while we look at this place and recognize it's so broken, we know that all of creation groans waiting for that deliverance. Father, we also know that you're at work in this world doing the good that you do. So, Lord, use us. Just as we stand here at this moment, we yield ourselves to you. Use us to promote your goodness and your grace in this world that so desperately needs it. And we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.